Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, I interview my co-host Nick Schwartz, principal bass trombonist of the New York City Ballet, an overall neat and swell guy. My name is Sebastian Vera. We've been encouraged by many of you to interview each other for a while now. First of all, thanks for caring. Nick drew the short straw to go first, and I really think you're going to enjoy hearing his story and getting to know him better. We talk about his whole life, and it gets a little heavy at the end, and I appreciate my friend for allowing himself to be vulnerable. There's something that makes me nervous about interviewing and being interviewed by someone I know so well, probably why I put this off for so long, but I'll be in the hot seat next year so. Try your hardest to be patient. I know it'll be real tough. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the Trombone Retreat podcast anywhere you find your podcasts. We'll have a new episode every other Monday. This episode is brought to you by Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns has the latest models of Shires, Bach, Yamaha, and Courtois trombones, as well as a large assortment of Greg Black mouthpieces. They sell vintage and consignment trombones and are the exclusive U.S. dealer for Tyne Instruments. They offer free in-person virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians and have newly expanded policies that make it easier to purchase and test drive the best equipment during a time when safety and staying home are top priorities. There's a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories with multiple easy financing options on all inventory. For more information, visit their website at houghtonhorns.com. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat. Oh, oh my goodness. You already started recording. It feels it feels so weird. I'm going to treat you just like everybody else. So with disdain and uh, superiority in your heart? Is that what you think of me? No, not really. I just wanted to come up with the worst possible thing to say. <laughs> it's like, got to hit first. Mm-hmm. First rule of going to prison. <laughs> when you're in the clink. <laughs> Well, well, thanks for taking the time to join the, the trombone retreat today. We're really excited to have you on. Sorry, sorry, my partner couldn't make it today. Well, you know, I had to move around a couple of gigs and, uh, you know, Saturdays are <laughs> tough. See, I, I mean, normally I would be uh, showering up, getting ready to go down and play. I would play a Nutcracker uh, at 2 o'clock and then I would go teach for two hours at Juilliard Pre-College and then I'd go back and play another Nutcracker. So that would be my normal Saturday this time of year. Yeah, it's insane, right? December is usually just a blur. November, December, because, I mean, your Nutcracker runs, and we're, we're going to get to that, of course, mm-hmm. but, like, it starts, like, at Thanksgiving, before it Thanksgiving? It starts the day after Thanksgiving. And goes all the way until... Until, well, it depends, because 
Thanksgiving is always the last Thursday of the year, but some or thir- sorry, last Thursday of November. But sometimes that Thursday lies where there's time afterwards in the month. Sometimes you know, you know, sometimes it's like, like Thanksgiving is like the twenty second. So therefore, we'll end on like January first. But if it's a really late date, like if it's like the tw- twenty, like this year is pretty late, right? It was like the twenty sixth. I want to say. So this year, I think it was scheduled to go until like January 4th, which is my birthday. Nutcracker has run into my birthday many times. So basically, it's a full six weeks, no matter how you cut it. That's, yeah, it's a lot of Nutcracker. And, and you know, it's easy to complain about it because you're doing the same thing so many times. But I mean, there could be worse things in the world than playing one of the greatest pieces ever written. You know? Well, I mean, you know, I challenge any person, musician or not, to find any piece of music that has hit after hit after hit. I mean, every every single piece in it is an absolute hit, you know, and... And, and the bass trombone part's freaking awesome. The bass trombone part is awesome. I mean, it's impossible to play Run or Nutcracker without being in awesome shape. I mean, <laughs> not to say you have to go in being in awesome shape, but you will be by then because you're, you're playing most of the time, you know? I mean, even if it's little things here and there, you're, you're, you're basically playing. So it's, uh, it's great for the chops, that's for sure. Didn't you tell me once that you think, I mean, your opinion is the... The best brass part in the entire orchestra is the is the bass trombone. I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I think so. I mean, it's it's. Let me put it this way: it's definitely the most independent of the brass parts, except for I mean, there's the chocolate solo on trumpet, but that's a little blip. But you know, more or less, the brass section is acting as you know either a trumpet section, trombone section, or a horn section, or a whole brass section. But the bass trombone part has so many little independent moments that it makes it quite unique. And Tchaikovsky tended to write that way for the, for the bass trombone, but he really took it to another level in, in Nutcracker for some reason. And if you had to estimate how many you've played so far, what do you think it would be? Well, I have an exact number. I just don't have it in front of me. I have, I, every time I play a show, I uh, mark a tally in, my, in, in the front page of my book. I would be paranoid that I would like forget, wait, did I mark it today? Well, I, I always do it at the end of the show. It's just my, my oh, little smart. routine. Like right when the applause starts, I, I turn the page back to the, the opening of the book and I'm, I mark a new tally. And then each year I mark, I, I put the whole tally in parentheses for the whole Nutcracker run of that year. And I'm at like 240, 250, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Do, do the, the tally marks get a little more jagged and angry towards the end well what i've noticed is my first nutcracker run which was 2010 the tallies were quite big <laughs> and then I, <laughs> and then i started realizing well i might be doing this for a long time and this page is is only so big so i better start making the tallies a lot smaller so they get smaller as they go along i still love that you told me that because i asked you if you have it memorized and and you usually have a pretty good memory for that kind of stuff and you said you never quite do it without the music but you'll notice that sometimes you'll go like eight pages without turning the page and not even realizing it. Yeah, I'll, I will go. Well, I mean, it's like, I'm not like zoned out. I'm, I guess I'm zoned in like or, or in the zone. Ooh. I'm, I'm crushing it. So like, I'm kind of just like looking around the orchestra and like looking at different people and trying to like, you know, either connect with them musically or just with eyesight or something like that. And then I'll look down my page and I'll realize like, I'm like way behind on the page trends, but I'm, I haven't missed anything. It's just sometimes you forget to turn a page. <laughs> Zoned in the new album by Nick. Exactly. It's going to be my, ma- that, that, ma- my manifest is going to be called zoned in. <laughs> that makes me think of something though. And that's something that, you know, going through school, you don't really get a chance to realize as much when in most schools, you know, you, you rehearse for a month or two and then give a concert. 
And when you're a professional, especially when you're a pit professional, you're often playing the same show multiple times. But with that comes some benefits. I imagine with the Nutcracker, you you talk about looking around and, and noticing things like you probably notice something new every time you play it, I imagine. And by getting to hear it so many times, you you pick up on different things. Well, I mean, it, it's, you know, I don't want to say I, I know the piece inside and out. I don't think it's really possible to know every corner of every piece. But one thing that is interesting is, you know, because we do it so much and for such, uh, I mean, not a long period of time, it's six weeks, but that's a, that's a long run of one piece of music, especially when you're doing it. It's, I think our longest weeks are 12 shows a week, it's, and it's tough. No, that has nothing on Radio City, by the way. Radio City does, yeah. does I think, up to six shows a day, which is crazy. Ridiculous. Um, but anyhow, we get a lot of subs coming in because, you know, people need to take some time or maybe they have another gig or whatever. And then let's say you have a new second oboe player or you have some new blood in the back of the second violins who sit right in front of me, and they might play something in a way that makes you go, ooh. I never really noticed, like, <laughs> I noticed that part, but I didn't notice it in that way. Like, ooh, that's that's cool how those parts fit together. And it's not to say one's better or worse, it's just different. And th- that's what's cool when you're playing a run like that is actually, you know, if, if you pay attention and try not to zone out and really try to actually do the opposite and like trying to see how things are just slightly different every day with personnel, it could be the conductor, it could be the dancers de- defining the tempos like a new principal dancer or something like that and wanting something slower. So it, it changes the whole vibe of the piece. You know, those things keep the mon- monotony less monotonous. <laughs> and coming from the other side, if you're subbing in an orchestra like that, that knows a piece that well, it's it's equally like, I, I've been in situations like that where you, you go in an orchestra and you play a piece that they know cold. They've been playing it for years. and if you do well, it can be doubly good in that situation and vice versa, of course. But that's when I always find you get the most random compliments from like a section bass player will come up. Yeah, oh, yeah. And like, oh, I really like what you did that because they, they just know it so well. And so when anything changes, they're like, oh, who's that? You know. Well, I mean, like it, it, this was a funny one. I had a sub in once and there's just a speaking of just how independent the bass Ramon part is. There's this little bass line in Waltz of the Flowers. So yeah, so this is a melody, and on the bottom you're going boom, 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 boom. I love that boom. And I had a sub came in and driving the bus, and apparently played it full, like pretty full, like not not very loud, because I talked to my brass colleagues. Said no, but the uh, associate concertmaster came up to me, and they were like, "Who was that sub? Like he was playing that so loud." And, and in reality, I just I, I kind of hang back on it and try to fit in the texture there. I don't I don't make it a big solo moment. And I think some bass drummers view it as like a little solo moment. Wait, it's not the melody. <laughs> and I, I play it pretty soft. I play it, you know, a, a true mezzo piano, which I think is what's written. And my sub had played it louder. And none of the brass players minded it, but it's just those little things that people notice. I feel like Tchaikovsky is kind of good about that, right? It's not necessarily these solos you get in the bass drum part can often be you're not necessarily driving the melody, but you're driving the time. You know, that solo in particular, you're you're guiding the groove, and that arguably is one of the most important things, especially in ballet. Yeah. You know, one of my least favorite things about our pit is that we're not closer to the bass section because a lot of those moments are with the bass, the bossy 
and it would be nice to be able to connect with them because you know I've I've heard from the other side of the pit reporting that there was there's phasing in moments like that just because we can't hear each other and I was always they can hear you but no you can't they hear can't them. hear that's, me that's always the hard they part can, you, really you know what's funny oh, is wow. there's one piece we do as a ballet called DGV it's originally called MGV Music Ground Vitesse. Anyhow, there's two bass trombones in this piece of music. One is in the normal bass trombone side of the pit, and the other one is an, in an amplified chamber orchestra. And I play that part, which sits over in the principal cello chair across the pit. And it's a pretty loud, minimalist piece of music, but it's pretty loud for the brass playing. And I, I'm sitting there. I'm not terribly far, maybe 40 feet, 30 feet. I mean, it's not that far. And I can't hear... The trumpets, I can't hear the trombones, nothing. And I, it just shocked me because the whole time people on the other side of the pit be like, yeah, I, I can barely hear the brass. And I'd be like, really? We're playing like pretty loud, you know? It's just the acoustics of our pit and every pit has this problem of being able to hear across, some better than others. But yeah, so they can't hear me. I can't hear them. I mean, it's kind of like you can hear an outline of what I'm doing. You know, it's not really like a true clear sound. And, and there's nothing you can do about it because that's the acoustics of the pit, you know? Yeah, and that's the benefit of chemistry, hopefully, and trial and error over a long period of time. But okay, so for those of you that don't know you as well as me, let's let's walk some people through little little Nicky Pop Schwartz's childhood, shall Ooh. we? This is this is fun for me. You know, I I'm taking on the challenge of you know you're obviously one of my best friends, but you can always get to know someone better, and so. I'm going to try to discover some new things today, too, if I can, Okay, and then share some stories and highlight some things that we know about you that I want everyone to know. But so you bounced around a little bit growing up. Walk, walk us through like the Okay, so scenes. I was born in the suburbs of Chicago in Barrington, Lake Zurich area, and lived there for a year and a half, almost two years. And then my family relocated to Columbus, Ohio. And those are kind of my earliest memories because I was there for another two years. So I was, I turned four I think when we moved from Columbus, Ohio to um, Orange County, California. And we moved to another place in Orange County, um, in, in Mission Viejo. And we lived there until I was about, I think, six or seven. Lived there for two or three years. And then we moved to Plano, Texas, near where Sebastian grew up, um, just outside Dallas. So I lived there for four years and, you know, really starting to formulate as a young pup. Then we relocated to El Paso, Texas, which is probably, I think, probably the most unique place I live because you don't, you know, you don't meet a lot of people from El Paso, Texas. But, you know, I have to say... Some of the nicest people in the world. You know, it's considered the friendliest city in the United States. I believe And it, it was a really co cool place to... That's, that's where, like, I, where I kind of began. I definitely began... I began the trombone there, so maybe that's why I consider that. And you're, and you're moving around so much because dad's Yeah, work. so my dad started off kind of on the middle low rungs of a company called Aramark. Aramark is a company based in Philadelphia that does a food service, catering, and um, uniforms, actually. They're huge. They, they, they've done the Olympics before. They, they do a lot of like ballparks and stadiums. They also do jails. They do cafeterias. They actually, uh, they do the Juilliard, or they did the Juilliard cafeteria when I was in school. And... My dad eventually, I'll get to that. My dad eventually got that account later on in his life to to uh, be a consultant for them. And he said it was the single worst cafeteria he'd ever seen in his entire career. And that's saying something. My dad had seen hundreds, if not thousands of cafeterias. So 
for all you Juilliard artists of the future, for anyone who went to Juilliard and thought the food sucked, you were right. My my dad was expert on this, but anyhow, so El Paso was interesting because my dad was working in Mexico. He, his office was in Juarez. At this point, Juarez was a much safer place to be. In fact, I used to cross the border regularly. I, I would go across. My best friends uh, from down the street were a set of twins, Manny and Fernie Rivera. But anyhow, their grandma lived in, in uh, Juarez. And we used to cross the... They, my parents would just let me go across the border with them and go stay with their grandma for the weekend. And we'd go over and I played football and we'd go over and play football teams in Juarez. And it was it was a totally different time. But so it was a very interesting place to grow up because, you know, it, it's so heavily Mexican influence. And that's where I really gained my love of food, I would say. Crossing the border with my dad or my friends and eating this amazing Mexican food on the streets and like, you know, eating it and they go, what is this? And they'd be like, oh, it's goat brains. And it's like, well, I think that's weird, but I also like it. So I guess I like goat brains. That's interesting. <laughs> um, and it, it was just, it was a really cool place to grow up in mountain biking and hiking and finding tarantulas. And it was, it was cool. As you do. So you had a very similar upbringing geographically to a military kid right besides not having a parent in the military so i imagine you know was it difficult making friends and and you know always bouncing around to the new place or not wanting to get too invested in a friendship um i've been always more of a carpe diem sort of person i i live more for the day and and you know that for for better or worse that's part of my my character not to say I don't have plans for the future or anything, but I, I tend to live that way. So for me, I just kind of took it as it as it came, and I would just make friends and roll with it. And you just toss them aside when you move. You'd be like, okay, later. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, it's so funny the the friendships we made over the years. I mean, my, our our best friends collectively as a family when we lived in Plano outside Dallas were across the alley from us. There was a back alley behind our house and they were a British family and, or are a British family. And they had a son and a daughter, like the same age of my sister and myself. And, and the son's name was also Nick. And he was my best friend growing up there. Unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago from uh, leukemia, which was um, really, really sad. He, he was a good guy and it, it's, you know, he's way too young to die. He died at like 30 years old, you know? But we kept in touch over the years, and they would come and visit. They would come and visit, you know, in, in El Paso. They came up to Detroit. They, they, my parents would go on vacation with them, all this stuff. And then from El Paso, my best friends, Manny and Fernie, they came up to Michigan and spent a summer up here. And when I moved up, up here from, from El Paso, and, and I went on vacation with their family down to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, the next summer. And so, you know, we, we maintained the friendships to some degree. Of course, over time, these things sometimes fizzle out but we've made we've maintained basic contact especially facebook definitely helps yeah. you know you know so so no 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 scarring childhood no i mean separation it, anxiety of course it was really difficult when you make good friends like that like manny and fernie they were like we were thick as thieves we would go everywhere together and then suddenly they weren't in my life that was difficult you know but i i history for my my history told me that when i moved to a new place i would be able to make new friends and maybe, maybe it, I mean, maybe it helped that skill because you, you had to, you had to be outgoing. You had to constantly, you didn't grow up with people. So you you always had to like put yourself out there and meet people. 
De- definitely. For me, for me, yeah, I, I viewed it as kind of like a, a healthy challenge. So what made you be interested in, in wanting to join band? You know, as you know, growing up in Texas, you have to join the band. You have to do it. At least you don't in have high school, to. you had to. You had to oh, do wow. the band. At least for one year. No, wasn't 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 like that for me. I thought that was everywhere in Texas. Jeez. Yeah, we had to join the band in our middle school. You had to you had to give it one year at least, and then it was optional. So um, I joined in sixth grade, and when it came time to choose, you know, I was talking to my parents, and my mom played the saxophone growing up. You know, she just did it through high school, and then Sally, you know, it's it's bust that saxophone <laughs> out. I want to hear that. I'll ask her. You know, my, my mom has another hidden talent, which is she is an award-winning ventriloquist. Yet, what? I, Sally's been holding out on you me. Should see, you should see her uh, <laughs> Her dummy. His name is Dudley. I, I didn't know about Dudley when I was a kid, and I found him in the basement in a trunk, and, and I opened oh up this God. trunk, and there's a, there's a ventriloquist dummy in there. It haunted <sighs> my dreams. I swear. <laughs> the best thing I remember, it, it was broken, and it needed to go to a special shop to be repaired, there's strings up to the eye so you can move the eyes like when your hands inside of it and the string had broken. So the eye was like completely like no. sideways. It freaked me out. <laughs> um, oh my so, God. If I was your mom, I would mess with you so much. Like in the middle of the night, if you like didn't clean your room or see, something, that's, <laughs> just like <laughs> that's the difference between me. Why didn't you clean up last <laughs> night? Yeah. She could have used it a little bit more. She didn't use it as a weapon as much as she could have. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my mom played the saxophone and my dad played the trombone and they were, you know, I listened to both of them, like what they liked about it. And I think my mom played the saxophone as more of a club sort of thing. Like, Oh, I'm going to be in the band. And my dad was a little bit more enthusiastic about it, even though he played it for less amount of time than my mom played the saxophone, but he, he was a better salesman. How he's, Oh yeah, you got this long slide and you can play, um, jazz or like band music and you you can you can play in the orchestra and like it's very versatile that's great advice when you're starting out i had no idea about that stuff well my dad my dad was like a true lover of music all music like anything that just reached him it didn't matter genre i mean his, his taste was wider than almost anyone i've ever met and so like you know he wasn't like a connoisseur of any specific genre is just music and so i think he had just exposure to it like oh there's a trombone oh there's you know it's like and he obviously related to that because he played the trombone knew how hard it was so i picked it up and after a couple weeks in band we would you know we'd have like chair tests and scale tests and things like that i i remember at some point i got held after class by my band director and my band director said uh i i need i want to talk to your parents because i think you have a real talent for this and I think you need to start taking lessons, but with someone serious. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I'm just doing what I'm told. Like, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't, like, immediately hooked. It, it was just like, okay, well, this is, like, another thing I have to do. I have to, you know, I have to do my homework and I have to practice my trombone. So I practice, you know, 20 minutes a day or something like that. But the reason I tell this is because, you know, they, he pulled my parents aside and said, here's the number of the professor at University of Texas, El Paso. I don't want him studying with, with like a high school student. I want him studying with a professional. And so my parents were just like, okay. And, and they called up this guy. <laughs> These are the heroes, the band directors that, that see this early, you know, and take a chance and just do, because he didn't have to do that, you know? 
Well, I'll tell I'll tell you what he saw, and why, I, I'll I'll kind of get into the thing that he saw that was I was unaware of. But there's a story leading into this. So I, we set up our first lesson with the professor at University of Texas El Paso, UTEP for short, and the end of the lesson. He says, I want you to play me an F major scale, two octaves. And so I do it. I had learned it. And he said, this is, this is what Dr. A is talking about. That was my band director in middle school, doc, Dr. A. So this is what he's talking about. And he, my mom was in the room at this time. He said, Nick, his trombone is broken and the tuning slide doesn't work. This is a rental from like a, a instrument, like a music shop. And his trombone is broken. The tuning slide doesn't move and the slide doesn't go past fourth position. And I didn't know that because I'd never played a trombone before. So my, my, the, the inner, the inner uh, slides were bowed outwards and not, wouldn't allow the slide to really go past fourth position <laughs> unless you'd like really pushed it, you know, getting Good the thing. You should just left it at home. <laughs> but what, what, do, what Mr. A or Dr. A heard from me is I played a really good F major scale without the use of sixth position. So I would play the F and the G and I'd lift down the F and then I'd start moving the slide. And then for the same for the C and the D, you know, for you trombone players, I was, I was lipping things down to match the scale in my, I could hear it in my ear. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but you know, I could hear what a scale sounded like. Cause I, I grew up around music. My sister was a, a really, really good pianist. And so I, I heard scales all the time. And so I, I had in my ear, what a scale is supposed to sound like. And I, I was apparently doing it with a decent enough sound that he heard this and saw that I was overcoming this obstacle without knowing I was overcoming it. And so he said, wow, this is like, like you have an ear for it. And so I start taking lessons and about, I don't know, it took maybe half a dozen lessons. And then my dad got transferred up to Michigan, which was the ultimate goal. Cause my parents are both from Michigan to get back here at some point and moved up here. And that's kind of the full circle of, trombone and how i got up to michigan yeah and so you got into some good band programs up in michigan there's there's some pockets of some really good programs started studying with kip hickman who we know from the retreat who's principal trombone in kalamazoo who's mm-hmm. fantastic how long did you stay with him i studied with him ninth tenth and eleventh grade and An important time yeah well I, I remember over christmas one year i got i just had like an epiphany and i had to call kip i was like I just realized like after practicing, I said, this is what I want to do. I love this. And this is what I want to do. And he, I think the only way I can put it, he, he read me the riot act in a nice way. He told me how hard it's going to be. And Good. if I'm really ready and he threw everything at me, all these books and said, okay, now your load is like tripled what you need to learn every week. And if you can do this then I'll take you seriously. And I did it. Good teacher right there. Oh yeah. He was, he was awesome. He was so, um, supportive, but he was tough, you know, not, not in a mean way, but just like he really pushed me. And that's what I needed at that time. And I, I at that time, I don't think I could have been pushed hard enough because I, I was just so in, I was a hundred percent in. So he was, he was absolutely instrumental in my growth. So let's talk about your interlocking experience. And I never got to experience interlocking, but it's one of those things where you, for example, every time we talk about it, you light up and similar with, with other friends that got experience to go to the academy. Yeah. Um, so you decided to go there for your last year of high school, which, you know, is, that's a choice. Like, you know, you're so used to your friends, you're, you're in your comfort zone. And the thought of your one last year of school leaving, 
I mean, I imagine that was a little, can be a little tough too, but also a really exciting opportunity. So tell us what that experience was like. Well, this all stemmed from, you know, even though I was in Michigan at this point in Interlochen's in Michigan, I knew nothing really of the Academy. I, I had kind of maybe heard of Interlochen as a place, but my, my dad, my dad was very similar to me. Um, or I'm very similar to how my dad was in the sense that academics were never great for me. And it's not that I couldn't do it. It's that I didn't want to do it. I I didn't understand the need to prove to someone else that I could do something except for on the trombone. The trombone is the only thing that ever spoke to me that way, but I would learn things and it, I just didn't care. It's like, okay, now I know this. I don't care about doing the homework. Now I know this thing. I don't need to prove it to you. What for letter grade? Who cares? And I'm not condoning that. That's just how I tick. And my dad was kind of the same way. And what turned him around, what found, what helped him find his way is he was living in England as a young, young boy. And he was kind of falling behind there. And his, he, he grew up in Michigan and then they moved to England. Anyhow, they sent him back to go to a boarding school in the States because things just weren't working out for him there. And he went to a boarding school actually near Interlochen called Leelanau school. And he's had, he always wanted me to go to a boarding school because he saw that same quality in me. Like I was struggling in school and I needed a smaller environment, um, more focused environment. And that's what really helped him. And then he remembered he, when he was at Leelanau, the Interlochen Academy had just opened up. It went from a, you know, summer school. And then they added the, the year, the, the actual high school. And they used to play each other in intramural sports because they're only like 30 minutes away from each other. And so he had this memory of like, oh my, yeah, there's this arts high school in Northern Michigan. And so. Would they, would they all like run out in like tie-dye uniforms? and <laughs> Probably. Barefoot. I mean, this is the 60s. So yeah, I imagine. But I remember him telling me he was embarrassed because they had like organized, like they would have practice at Leelanau and the interlocking team would just show up and just like, whoever wanted to play and they would, they would beat the Leonard school with no practice or any playbook or anything like that. And this was in football and basketball, all sorts of sports. So he remembered this and got pamphlets and stuff like that. And, and said, you know, let's go check this out. And I was like interested in the idea of like, okay, I can do music all the time. But then I went up there and visited for, for my audition and I was, I was sold. It's just like, it was, I was like, this is my people, you know? Why? Um, well, you know, it's like, it was the middle of the week. I remember this and it was such an odd experience because I'd never experienced anything like this. And there were these collage concerts. Yeah. I, I think we've talked about this idea at the, at the retreat. We've had, we've called it. Yes, that exactly. Yeah. And it's based on what they do at Interlochen, which is you have a recital night and it's not for any one specific person. It's just like, we have an hour and a half of time and Fill it, how, fill it with whoever wants to play a little solo piece or a movement of a solo piece or a chamber music piece. It's just kind of a variety show. And so I went to this concert. It was, I don't know, like a Wednesday night or something. And there was all these, there were all these different musicians sounding great. And two trombone players played. This uh, guy, Ryan Casey, who's now, I believe, a lawyer. Um, and Ben Green, who, who plays in Bern, Switzerland. He, he was at the academy uh, a year before me. And he played and I heard the quality and also just having that concert in the middle of the week just seems so foreign to me at a high school. It's like, and that was normal. That was every single week. 
and it, it just it, that that to me really just spoke to me just like wow th this is available to you and then i heard an orchestra rehearsal an orchestra rehearsal was every day and the orchestra sounded fantastic and there was people from all over the world and i've on a side note which kind of plays into this i grew up with a total fascination of where people are from and maps in general i love maps and i love knowing like where things are too. and so seeing all these people that you know i've seen these countries on a map and it's like oh my god that person is from turkmenistan holy crap like i've never that's not real i've never even like i've never even met or i don't know anything about it or like this person's from macedonia this person is from the country of jordan you know it's just like it was such a different experience than anything i'd been around you know i'd be exposed to other cultures but it was kind of small and then suddenly boom like I, this huge culture explosion in in northern michigan and also not to mention if no if you have, if the listeners haven't been to interlock or seen pictures of it it's unbelievably beautiful it's super beautiful it's the middle of the woods right on a lake what's well, in between two lakes it's just a really nice place to be you know it's, it sounds kind of like getting to start music school a year early, but in this kind of beautiful wooded environment with younger, similarly motivated young people and really good faculty that are always encouraging this kind of, did it, did it open up? Like, did it change the way you practice? Did it change the way you, you thought creatively? Yeah, I think, I think kind of like, subconsciously in some ways, you know, cause just like being around these people, like, you know, I had never been around serious dancers before or serious artists or filmmakers or writers or whatever it may be. And even if they're in a completely different discipline, just seeing how they work on things, seeing their process, it opens up ideas for you on how you're going to do things. One of my best friends when I was there was a violist and I would go and just listen to her practice and I would go to her lessons and hear the advice. And I, one of my other best friends was a cellist and, and she's, and she's like, why does this guy keep following me? Practice room? <laughs> That's a whole nother story. Um, I should really say something about this. <laughs> but you know, I just, I, I really tried to absorb everything like a sponge. So it's hard to say, Yeah, I, I can't say I wasn't influenced in my, my process was, was, wasn't changed. But I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think it was just I was absorbing as much as I could. Yeah. And it just slowly started seeping into my practice. Yeah, we talk about that. That's like one of the most important things is who you surround yourself with is is one of the biggest indicators of, of your growth, you know. And I, I mean, I attribute so much of my growth to just being good friends with you and, and having a friend that I can play for whenever you know yeah, um, Absolutely. With, with all your experiences i mean that, it's such a valuable thing and even like carol yanch was a, one of your best friends there and yeah i mean <laughs> that's a that's an interesting story so like <laughs> i was a prospective student there and carol like everyone who goes to interlock and has to have a work study job and carol's was Carol is the principal tubist of the Philadelphia Orchestra right, the, for those that don't know and me. also i mean j j there's so many accolades you can attribute to carol but Carol's also the only female tubist of a major orchestra in the entire world. And, um, you know, that will change, but a huge barrier to break through. Anyhow, she was my, she, she, we graduated together and she was there for three years. So when I was a prospective student, she gave me a tour of campus. That was her work study job was showing prospective students around. And part of that job was afterwards writing a handwritten note to the student and 
and sending it to you. So I got a, a letter at, back in Detroit, a letter in the mailbox and says, Hey Nick, nice to meet you. I hope you come to Interlochen and next year we can, well, how did she put it? She goes, and next year, maybe we can sit down and play the ride together. And so at this point, I didn't know what the ride was. I knew what the ride of the Valkyries was, but I thought the ride was like a piece for bass, Ramon and tuba duet. And so at this point, the internet is really in its infancy. So you can't like research. There's no YouTube. There's none of that stuff. So I had the, uh, what the bone cat, which came in every month from Hickey's. It was the catalog Mm -hmm. of trombone music from Hickey's. And I'm looking through this thing and like just every day looking the ride, the ride, I call up Hickey's. Do you have a duet for bass, Ramon and tuba called the ride? Well, who's it by? (laughs) Can you imagine a worse duet? (laughs) Yeah. And then, so I get up to interlock and, and I start hearing people refer to the ride of the Valkyries as the ride. And I was like, Oh, like I didn't know how to play it yet, but I knew what it was. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so stupid. I never admitted that to Carol until like we were both professionals. <laughs> and then I was like, I told her that. And of course she thought that was hilarious. But yeah, Carol. So I got to sit next to Carol every day and I get there and I hear her play the tuba. And even now I think she's one of the greatest brass players who's alive period, not tuba, but brass. And I hear this and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I mean, like, I'm not even close. This was my standard was just like anywhere near Carol. And as I get older and go to college and all this, I start to realize like, Oh, like that should be your standard. Yes. You should reach for the stars, but Carol is cut from a completely different cloth than anyone else. I mean, she is just a unbelievable talent. So like I had to give myself a little slack, like, okay, yes, I would like to sound like Carol, everyone should want to sound like Carol because she's just an absolute monster. So let's move on to the next phase of your life, which, you know, deciding on colleges, you, you know, you, you didn't know where you're going to end up and, and you were, and we've covered this in, in the pod before, but you were lucky and surprised to get into Juilliard. I, yeah, I was very, very surprised. Oh, backing up just one second. I wanted to mention this. Uh, just for those of you who've been to the retreat or know the retreat, apply to the retreat, talk to Steve, our, our, our operations manager, Steve Gellerson, and I went to Interlocking together as well. So he's part of the Tremona retreat family, but just wanted to shout out there. <laughs> and none of the stories with Steve are, are PG-13 enough to share yeah, on this we, podcast. So. That's behind the Patreon wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> our imaginary Yeah, Patreon exactly. Wall. So, uh, yeah, I went to Juilliard and I, I couldn't believe I got in and Interlochen really prepared me for that experience. I imagine you shared some some classmates that got in with you as well. There, there were 16 of us that went from my awesome. class that went to Juilliard. So yeah, it, it was nice hitting the ground at, at a, in a brand new city. I'd never lived in an inner city before and, you know, living in Manhattan and knowing some people really helped. But, you know, it's an intense experience as you can imagine, uh, Juilliard. But, you know, I, I just kept my head down and, and, you know, it, I, I did my job and I love Don Harwood. Uh, I, I speak about him every day. I think about him every day. He was an amazing inspiration. Strong father figure type, right? Totally. It, all you wanted to do was have him say, Ooh, that was good. Cause if he said that he, if he was one of those teachers that if he said it was good, it was good, you know, <laughs> and that, that really stuck with me because when he would say it was good, it, it just felt so awesome. Like you really have achieved something. And he never, he never like yelled or anything. And he never said that was terrible. He would never say anything like that, but he would reserve the true compliment for when it was really ready. You know, it could be an excerpt, could be a solo, could be 
an etude, whatever. But he would reserve those compliments, and he would usually say when you got done playing, okay, uh, let, let's go back to being. This is what we need to work on. It was just like very cut and dry, and that really worked for me. I was, I, I, I was, you know, of course, I'm emotionally invested in the instrument, and I, ha- I, everyone has an ego, but I was always pretty decent at separating my ego from my playing. Not perfect, but good enough that I was able to take really direct criticism without it really, really hurting me. And I'm, that doesn't make me stronger. It's just, I was, I was able to do it, you know, it's just, and I think it's a a great benefit to have, to be able to do that. And not everyone can. And I I feel very lucky that I was able to do that. And you're a real, you know, you're a real creative type thinker, I think. And you like exploring and figuring things out. And I imagine someone like that provides like a, like a strong structure for someone like you that's, you know, exploring all these things. So it kind of like is a perfect balance to that. Well, between Tom Riccobono, Interlock and, and Don Harwood, that, that's why I, I say Interlock and prepared me is really a lot of Riccobono because he was very structured like that. And, and not, not to say Kip wasn't before that, but it, it kept getting more and more structured, kept getting more and more intense as it went along. And Don really is super, super structured, very meat and potatoes as a quote unquote. And that's what I needed at that time. I needed, as he, as he put it, I needed to put up walls around my practice and my playing really just put it in a box because it was too all over the place. Like I, yeah, like I was very creative and very expressive personality. I'm very uh, emotional person. And I remember my freshman year at Juilliard, John Rojack pulled me aside after a, a brass quintet concert and he said, you are a great musician. Don't let this place change that. And I, I thought that was a great compliment, but I was confused what he meant. I was like, well, isn't everyone here a great musician? Like we're all Juilliard, you know? And what he meant is like, don't get caught up in the nitty gritty, still have an expression to you. And lo and behold, over four years at Juilliard, I got really square, really, really square. And I didn't know this, but then I went to music. Well, I was going to go to San Francisco conservatory for my grad school. And I went to music Academy before that, the summer before I was moving to San Francisco and I studied with Mark Lawrence. And he was the first one saying to me, like, everything sounds good, but it is so academic and so square. It's you're not capturing the essence of the piece. And that was so frustrating because I didn't understand that anymore. I didn't understand. Well, if I'm playing all the right notes in the right time with a good sound, what more is there? And it's like, well, there's a lot more, but you can't put everything into words. It's a special something, you know? Yeah. So why do you think that, that atmosphere there kind of, do you think the atmosphere maybe at Juilliard or maybe music school in general kind of encourages that? Cause I mean, there's so many talented people and it's like, there's, it's so competitive that you develop this mindset of just like not trying not to mess up ever. And just, yeah, I mean, I think music school is so tough. You know, I, I, I had a lesson where I was teaching a lesson just yesterday and I had a student that I could hear that I could hear myself the, or that, that process happening where it's just like, I know you're a good musician and you're, you're just so worried about make, playing all the right notes and not missing one and, and everything in tune. And it's like, for me, kind of like tying it all together when I went to San Francisco, I studied with John Engelkiss and I'll never forget this lesson. I was playing Ein Heldenleben and I could, I can play Ein Heldenleben pretty well. Like it's a loud, 
low-ish excerpt. It's it's kind of fits what I do pretty well. And he said, yeah, it sounds good, but you're not phrasing it. And I had never, ever thought about phrasing an excerpt. And I was like, you know, <laughs> that, that was like, that was like saying the what? sky is orange. I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. So then he started breaking apart. This is a big battle scene. So, but I played it loud and all the notes good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's so bomb, 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 bomb. This part, he specifically said, well, what does that come from? Oh, and he said, it's the beginning of the piece. It's the same outline of the melody. It's just, it's just been put through the ringer a little bit. I never thought about that. And he goes, okay, where does the horn line go or the basses or whatever you want to think about the beginning of the piece? Where does the phrase go? Oh, whoa. And that was just totally, it, it wasn't about the answer at that moment for me. It was about, whoa, like I need to, I need to think about these things. Like I need to think about phrasing an excerpt. It is a piece of music, you know? I need to think about like accenting notes, not because it has an accent on it, but because it's an important note, putting weight on notes, things like that, that make a good musician, a great musician. I think that like, we start to view like everything that we play, like a delicate little Fabergé egg. And it's like, oh no, I have to be so careful. And like, everything's gotta be in its right place. It's gotta be perfect. And if I screw up, I'm going to drop this Fabergé, priceless Fabergé egg on the, on the ground. And it's like, in reality, that's what we want to achieve, but that's not the way to achieve it. The way to achieve it is by having a goal bigger than notes and intonation and rhythm in your mind. If you have those things are the givens of music. You should, those things should be in place. Yes, but we should not be focusing on them. That's what we focus on in the practice room. When we get into performing something for, for someone or for an audience or for an audition or a recital, at that point, it should be about presenting a product that is polished because you've worked on the intonation and the rhythm and things like that. But that's not the end goal. That's, that's the building blocks to get to your end goal. Yeah, and people get stuck there, right? Exactly, because they start viewing it as the only thing. And it's like, well, yes, it's important, but there's something much bigger that, that is the umbrella over this entire thing that we're trying to practice, whatever piece of music or etude or whatever it may be. And we talk about that a lot, you know, going for what you're trying to do instead of trying not to mess up or focusing on what you don't want to do. So you were in, you know, you spent four years at Juilliard, then you went to San Francisco, spent a year studying there with John Kiss, And this is when you started to really start to branch out a little more outside of school and, and get more gigs. You could say that you were kind of doing that freeway philharmonic thing. Big time. I was absolutely. I mean, I, I went to San Francisco to get my master's and you know, I moved there in September and I dropped out of school in November because I immediately, I won an audition in the Monterey symphony, which is about an hour and 45 minutes South of San Francisco. And then I won a job in Huntsville, Alabama and harmful, harmful. And Huntsville is important for Sebastian in my relationship actually. But Huntsville used to have a clause in their contract that if you remember the orchestra, they would fly you in from anywhere. So I heard about that and that's why I took that audition. And then my good friend, Zach Bond had to pull out of a season with the Sarasota opera in Florida, which is a winter festival. It's about two months long, maybe a little bit longer. And you go live in Sarasota and play a full-time job for two months. And with all that stuff kind of combined, I realized 
oh, oh, I can't be in school anymore. So that's exciting for a young musician. Yeah. All those gigs getting to travel around. You know, I did the math and and also just not being able to be in school for three months or almost three months because of Sarasota. I realized I'm not going to be able to do this master's. It was a scary thing though, because, you know, I wasn't like rolling in money. I, I was just starting to make enough money to to make a go of it. So I took a, I took a leap of faith that I like kind of a faith in myself that I'd be able to figure this out. Yeah. And freelance in San Francisco, you're still having to pay the cost of living in one of the most expensive cities in, in the world. So, and keep in mind, this is also, I, I freelance there from 2006 to 2010. So this is when the recession hit in 2008 and the gas prices were insane. They were bad everywhere. They were over $5 a gallon in, 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 in San Francisco. And I drove a 1996 Jeep Grand Cherokee that got like 10 miles to the gallon. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're like losing money. Yeah. I mean, it's what I could gigs. afford. It's not my dream car. It's just what I could afford that would, that could run, you know? <laughs> so it, it, yeah, I was like, I mean, it cost me a hundred bucks to fill up the tank, you know? So it, it was, it was, it was tough. A lot of, uh, a lot of rice and dry beans for dinner. <laughs> one, one interesting part of the San Francisco experience I wanted to talk to you about was you got the opportunity to do a few soundtracks and recordings at, yeah. at Skywalker Sound and, and a lot of video games being made there, movie soundtracks. Yeah. I think the most jealous person of that is probably Jim Nova just because of his love of, uh, you know, George Lucas and, and uh, of course, uh, all the Star Wars movies, John Williams and stuff. Not that the John Williams stuff is done up there, but you know, this is George Lucas's personal property and he built a recording studio on it. And so all, a lot of video game stuff happens there. And I did, there's a couple things that I did that never got released. So I don't remember the names, but it's probably your fault. Yeah. I did, um, a pirates of the Caribbean game. I did God of war three, which is a crazy big, big, um, that had, I think I had six trombones and two chimbasos. No, it was eight, eight trombones with two contras or something. It was, it was a lot. It was crazy. Why can't we have more orchestra pieces written this way? How fun would that be? Um, Audiences would love it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty gnarly. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's ever heard the, those crazy pedal, I think pedal D's in Hellboy, and they have a video of it of Jeff Budin and Dave Ridge cranking out uh, pedal D's. That's at Skywalker Ranch. So I got to do that. That was cool. I mean, that was my first time in a studio doing that stuff. And I've heard, I think Alex Isles, he's a, who's a great freelancer in LA and a studio player, talk about the scene as it's you know 99% boredom, 1% fear. And when the, the fear comes, <laughs> it's intense. Like you can have some charts in front of you that are freaking hard, you know? And you don't have time to practice them because the composer could have written it the night before. You just show up and, and you're not you're not allowed to see it, right? It's like proprietary, right? Well, you're not allowed to take it home for sure. Like, there's no way. I mean, and there would be no way too. You don't you don't get to practice it. So, again, practice your sight reading, everybody. Um, most of it's most of it's not that hard, but every now and then you get something that's like hard, and you're on their dime. So every take you have to do, if you are the cause of the mess up you're costing people money and their, and their time, you know? So it's, it's really important to show up and just nail it, you know? So you're, you're doing all these things. I imagine you're taking auditions and we, we've talked about some of your European audition experiences and, and just, I imagine at this point you're, you know, in the peak of your young career, you're in the peak of your audition yeah. chops. So you're probably taking everything that comes open at this time, I imagine. Yeah. Any, anything, anything. I I was not, 
I was casting as wide of a net as I could. And by the time the ballet came up, the ballet was my 20th professional orchestra audition. And I took four European auditions and 16 domestic auditions. And they were all over the country, uh, from, you know, from coast to coast, up and down, you know, basically anything that came open. There were a lot of, there were a lot of jobs that, that came open at, at one period of time, basically between 2004 and 2012, there were a ton of auditions and uh, I took almost all of them. Once I, uh, the 20th audition was the ballet. And after that, I, I the only audition I've taken is uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, I've, so I, I've been out of the audition scene basically for 10 years. <laughs> and I believe I actually met you, I think it's when you took the, the, the ballet audition. Ed Vinson and I like got you into Manus so you could like come use a practice room. Yeah, um, I remember that. that. That was like the first like, oh my God, it's Nick Schwartz. No, I didn't think that at all. <laughs> yeah. But I had, I had definitely heard of you. And you were obviously focused on your audition and everything, you know, big time in me left and right. Like, who are you? Well, I are, actually, are you... I remember you from when you took the principal Tremont audition in Huntsville. I really, yeah. I, well, cause you made the finals of that audition and yeah, that was like one of my first auditions where I advanced. It was very exciting. And I remember walking out of the, the hall and you were on the phone outside who know, I don't know who you're talking to, but you were on the phone outside and I recognized you from New York. We had probably hung out at a party or something like that. I mean, and you walked up to me and you're like, "Congratulations!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's just that that story we talk about how Nick accidentally told the wrong person, thinking they won. Not my fault. We, we, we you can hear that on another podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, yeah. So and eventually, I got to sub there, and that's how we got to hang out a little bit more. And then we started hanging out in New York. And yep. La la, we don't have to go over our whole history, but so the ballet audition is interesting because it's not, first of all, the job is very unique and I want you to go into that and the audition reflects it. It's, it's so different than a normal audition as far as the repertoire chosen. First of all, there's a lot from the ballet repertoire and you'll have, you know, etudes and solo works and, and things reflecting a lot of different styles and not any, maybe I don't know if there were any like classic bass trombone excerpts that you already knew on it. Yes and no. That's a tough one because like, I think Haydn creation was on there and I want to say Rhenish was on there as well. And then there were excerpts that are ballet excerpts, but they have crossed over into the classical world or sorry, not the the orchestral world, like um, Romeo and Juliet and um, some excerpts from Swan Lake. You'll see those sometimes on, on symphonic auditions. And Capalia, Capalia will sometimes be on symphonic auditions because it's it's pretty unique excerpt. But yeah, mainly ballet centric and specifically New York City ballet centric. A lot of the classical ballets, there's like Giselle, Don Quixote, Bayadere. Honestly, really crappy music. <laughs> um, th- we don't play any of them really. We play kind of our own repertoire at the ballet, at, at City Ballet. So when I got the list, a lot of it was like what is this? And some of it would be like, I think Tchaikovsky's third piano concerto was on there as an excerpt. And it was like, what, why is this on a ballet audition? Turns out someone choreographed it as a ballet and it's a kind of touchy little bass Ramon part. So that was on my audition. (laughs) Because the past guy had trouble with it or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. And 
So it's a unique audition, but I, at that point, because I had been taking auditions, 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 and the rep is pretty much the same for every audition, a couple little twists here and there, but more or less, it's the same stuff for every audition. And this one was completely different. So it was such a breath of fresh air, you know, and it was like taking opera auditions too. that. I felt the same way about that. Like, ah, I get to actually learn something and do something different. And not to say I've perfected the standard repertoire of symphonic orchestra stuff, but it was nice to have something different to work on. And maybe your unique strengths on the trombone were you, you got to show it more in an audition like this. I, th- I think because it was fresh, it helped me do that. You know, it helped me kind of access that creative side a little bit more. I didn't have the hold of the hangups that we develop on certain excerpts, you know, like, let's say Rhenish or something like that, you know, like you just think, Oh, don't have air balls. Don't play with a little wobble in your mm-hmm. sound, things like this. I didn't have these hangups because I'd never worked on these excerpts. So it was, it was all pretty fresh. You know, I think that really helped me keep access to side of my playing that I think is from, in my opinion, the most, the strongest, which is being a creative player, being a musical player. Yeah. So that in, in mind, tell us about, the job and how it's a, one of the more unique jobs in the country as far as the schedules like the the variety of things you do well the most unique thing i would say is the repertoire it it, it does go from you know some more standard ballets like nutcracker and sleeping beauty and swan lake romeo and juliet on and on but we play a lot of uh, piano concertos we play violin concertos we play there's string quartets we play new commissions it's it's all over the place and every week so anyhow, when, when you're when you're thinking about like an opera or a ballet, you're usually thinking about you show up and it's one piece of music. Like you go and see Traviata at the opera, or you go see Romeo and Juliet at the ballet. Well, we do we do Romeo and Juliet at the ballet. We do Swan Lake. We do these things, but more of our season is kind of variety shows where you'll have three or four different short little vignettes, like uh, a thirty minute ballet and then an intermission, then a twenty five minute ballet then an intermission, and then two 15-minute ballets separated by a pause, things like that. So the learning curve was incredibly steep when I got there because there's just all this music coming at you. I, I think my second show, I had, I had to sight-read Prokofiev's Prodigal Son, which the first trombone part is crazy. The bass trombone part's not that hard, but it's a lot of fast mixed meter stuff and like I mean, I was, <laughs> I was holding, I was sweating like crazy because they had already rehearsed it. And it was in the middle of the season that I joined. So they said, you, they gave me the option and said, you can play it, but you'll be sight reading. And Prokofiev's Prodigal Son, who knows that? Unless you play in a ballet orchestra. It's awesome. You should listen to it. But things like that, you know, it's just like you're thrown into the fire and you just have to like figure it out. And I really enjoyed that actually. It was tough. I had a lot to learn. But because of the nature of the job too, the, the, your colleagues are very forgiving because they understand it's a steep learning curve. You're, you're given a little bit more leniency, I think in your beginning, you know, and before they make a solid opinion about your playing, you know, if you miss a couple notes or screw up an entrance or something like that, you're not going to be like chastised because it's like, ah, you know, this is new for you. You, you haven't had a chance to study it, you know? And you're running into things too, where, you know, like we were talking about in the beginning, you, you may play, play a piece they've played hundreds of times and they do it a specific way that may not even be marked 
certain stylistic yeah. things and yeah. tempo things and articulation things. Well, that was the thing that my colleague said that really I got granted very early tenure, which was really nice. There was one tenure meeting and there was no no dissent from the from the committee. And so the music director said, well, I moved to just give him tenure. So after I think it was two months, I got tenure, which was very surprising because actually he announced my tenure in an orchestra rehearsal where there were no trombones. <laughs> so I wasn't there. And so I started getting all these texts from people in the orchestra being like, congratulations, oh, congratulations. Missed your moment. And I was like, congratulations on what? Because they hadn't told me yet. I found out from text messages from people. So um, I certainly wasn't even, it wasn't on my radar for like another nine months because it was a year-long process. But uh, one of the things they liked about me is that I was able to pick up on the style very quickly. I was able to... You know, I came in with kind of a broad side of playing and there's a lot of this stuff, especially some of the commercial stuff we do, that's, you, you have to play very short and they don't teach that at Juilliard. I'm sorry, they don't. <laughs> and, you know, they teach strictly like orchestral playing, like, like the symphonic orchestral playing, like playing Mahler, playing Bruckner, things like that. But having to play commercial stuff and having to play maybe some, it doesn't even matter what it is, it could be. Prokofiev, but like the specific moment that they just play it this way. And the first time through, I'd be wrong, but then I'd pick it up. And, you know, so they, they appreciated that I would, I wouldn't have to be told how to do things. I would just kind of pick it up and do it, you know? Yeah. You listen. <laughs> yeah. You're outward. You're not just locked. That's the biggest thing with young, younger players that you may not be as comfortable with playing with. Sometimes the traits you see is they're so fo- hyper-focused on themselves, which you can understand that they they totally miss out on hearing everything outside of them and, and matching. So absolutely, I have a question. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about living in New York City? Well, before I say that, I'll, I'll say something that has stuck with me ever since I moved to New York. And there's a movie called, I think it's a Spike Lee movie. It's called Summer of Sam. It's about the serial killer in the 70s in, in New York City. And it starts with a, a news reporter. He's like, he's like on site at one of the murders. That's like one, one of the opening scenes. And the news reporter, the first line of the movie goes, New York City, a city we love to hate and hate to love. And that, <laughs> for some reason, just stuck with me. And like, because yep. my whole time in New York, when I was in school, and then when I got the job in the ballet, it was always just mixes of like, holy crap, there is no better place in the world than this. And then something happens or you dealing with a super crowded subway or whatever, or like a snowy day in New York, which sucks. It sucks when it snows in New York. It's so uncomfortable because you're wet everywhere. (laughs) And you, you go back and forth, these extreme feelings of New York. And I don't think like anyone truly owns New York. Like New York owns everybody. I don't care how rich you are, how long you live there. You, you are fighting to live in that city. Yeah. And hanging on. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. It's a tough city to live in, but that's part of it. And I think the people that can survive and thrive in that environment, like there's a kinship that develops over that, like almost like war buddies, you know, just, it's Mm -hmm. such an intense place to live. And I love that and I hate it. And, but the things that I do love, I love the cultural scene. I, I mean, obviously I love Lincoln center. I love Carnegie Hall. I love the jazz clubs downtown. I love the small theaters. I've been to some some small theaters and experienced some incredible art. Small little galleries, museums, 
you know, all these crazy experiences, dive bars, just like all these like super cool things about New York. But, you know, as a person who loves to cook, I love the food scene there. It's phenomenal. You know, it's. And not only the restaurants you can go to, but you literally, you, I mean, you you even had a project once where you, you wanted, you started like trying to cook a meal from every country. But the fact that you can go shopping and find a, a specific store for any type of cuisine you want to cook is, is perfect for you. Well, yeah, it's just like I, I was in New York a couple months ago, just going there to kind of tidy up our apartment before we spent the winter in Michigan. And I was trying to cook Ethiopian food and I wanted to find the bread in Jera. And I looked online and <laughs> there, of course there's an injera bakery and it's in Harlem. And, um, I went and it's run out of this woman's apartment and, and it's awesome. I'm sure. And yeah, it was like 10 bucks for a bunch of injera. And yeah, it was like completely unlisted. I show up at this apartment building and I call the number. I'm like, I want some injera. She's like, how much? I was like, I don't know. And she, one package, $10. <laughs> I was like, okay. And she brings it down. Thank you. It's like, of course, New York, you know, <laughs> an injera bakery <laughs> in someone's apartment. So, you know, so things cool. like that. I just love it. You know, it's yeah. I, I, I couldn't describe New York any differently. The same, same, <laughs> same experience and love hate yep. relationship. So, I want to talk about your dad. Okay. If, if that's, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, I love talking about my dad. And, you know, for those that don't know, we, we, we lost your dad, uh, last year, I believe in mm-hmm. September and yep. End of September, which, you know, it's like, you know, probably every day feels like, you know, yeah, it does. It doesn't get it. I'll get into that in a second. It doesn't get easier, but it gets less hard. And and so so you had you know one of the realest artistic moments you could probably have is you know you you find out you're you're playing at the Met I believe you're it's in, during the Ring Cycle I believe it's Goddard Amaro mm-hmm. and that's, that's all right you get a call right before you want to walk us through well okay so the <clears throat> the week leading up to that my dad every year went on a golf vacation with his brother in Myrtle Beach. They had done that for 20 years or so, brother and a group of friends. And I'm talking to my dad, like maybe on Wednesday or something like that. And he starts saying, I'm, I'm having a really tough time seeing the ball when I hit it. So I switched over to yellow balls and that's still not helping. And you know, my, it, it seemed weird to me because I play golf. My dad, I played golf with my dad a lot. And that was one of the things he was great at. Like you can hit the ball 300 yards. I cannot, but one could. And he would be like, Oh yeah, it's it's under that leaf of that tree. Like I mean, he had really good vision for that. And so it seemed odd to me like, "Oh, you're having trouble with this." And then fast forward to Thursday night, so the next night, my my mom called me kind of in a panic saying that my uncle, my dad's brother, had called her, which was rare that he would call her directly. They were had a good relationship, but the relationship was mainly through my dad. And he was saying, "Rob, Rob is acting weird." He's not acting right. He's forgetting things. He's really spacey. He's sleeping a lot. I think you need to take him into a doctor when he gets, when he, when he gets back to Michigan and he had been experiencing really bad sinus pain in the front, like, like really like sinus headaches in the front of his head. So we knew something was up and I knew my mom was planning on taking my dad to the hospital right when he landed on Friday and Friday night, I I played my show at the, uh, the ballet. It was at the ballet that night and I got home and my mom called me 
and said they did an MRI, x-ray, all this stuff, and they found a large tumor on the back of his brain in the op- optic center of his brain explaining why he couldn't see the ball. So they had said, this doesn't look good. This looks really bad. But we were waiting. There, there was a, a new hospital built near my parents' house that had higher technology CAT scans. And so they said, we don't want to diagnose this until we can get a better read, which will take a bit because you have to transfer hospitals and you have to get in line. Essentially, there's just one machine for all of West Michigan. Because it could be anything at that point. Yeah, I mean, it could, they knew it was a tumor. Well, they knew it was either tumor or an aneurysm, both, not, uh, not or a, a clot, I mean, and, and not good either way. But the best case scenario would be a tumor that's benign. And so we're ho- holding out on that. And they wouldn't know after the CAT scan, but they would know if it's a tumor or a clot. And so they get the scan, and that's, the scan results came in about 10 minutes before I had to play a God or Damarong on Saturday night. And so, of course, I was up all Friday night worried about my dad. And then right before I have to play a six-hour opera, I find out that he has this tumor. It's confirmed it's a tumor. And he, my dad says immediately, tell Nick to come home. And he would never do that, ever, ever, ever. And I knew how serious it was. So before the show, I, I, I tell the whole section, I say, I just... I found out my dad has a tumor in his brain and that it does not look good. And he has to go in for surgery immediately and I have to go home. We were, we had one more week of work, uh, with the Met, of, of, uh, of the ring and I had to pull out. I had to go. Um, and the Met was so great to me with that experience. There was no questions of, well, who's going to do it? Who's going to play? They just said, we're going to figure it out. You, you worry about getting home. And, George Curran came in and, and w- luckily was able to go over there and do it. And he sight read the whole ring basically, which is a, a crazy feat. So did you leave in the middle of a show? No, I played that whole show. Um, I played the whole wow. Goddard Amaron, which was crazy experience. I mean, to find out that your dad has a tumor in his brain and then have to play a six hour opera is uh, not ideal. <laughs> I remember you, you told me that night that you didn't remember the first act. I still don't. And the first act is two hours long. It's a complete, it was, it's, it, it was the only time in my life I've experienced true shock. I was absolutely in shock. I don't remember anything from it. And, you know, I, I talked to my colleagues, you know, I talked to Paul Pollard and I talked to Weston and Damien, you know, and I said, did I, did I make all my entrances? Did I, and they were like, yeah, you sounded fine. I, I just, I guess I just went into autopilot. You know, at that point I knew, I knew the music very, very well. Which was lucky because I was able to shut shut down my my brain and just do it. And you know, at some point, I kind of I realized somehow that this was going to be my like last moment of making music for a while, and that I took kind of solace in it and just like gave into the experience and said, "Well, there's nothing you can do at this exact moment. You have to be here. You might as well like worrying yourself sick isn't going to do anything. You might as well just try to dig yourself." into this music and enjoy it. Um, cause that might be the last time in my life I get to play God or damn wrong. Who knows? Cause I, I'm, I'm not an opera orchestra. They just hired me to play the contra part for, for one run. So, you know, I realize I, I'm, I have all these emotions. I realize that though. I realize that I'm in this, it's a special moment. And, and I mean that in this case, not in a positive way, but there was a positive silver lining that I was playing music that is very special, you know, 
but it, it, it was, uh, it was a crazy experience, you know? Yeah. And that's the definition of, of compartmentalization, you know? Yeah. And I had, I um, had to, it was, it was self-preservation. So I, I, I took one day that that was Saturday. Then I took the next day to pack up. And then on Monday I drove, uh, I, I stayed with you on Monday night and Tuesday I made it to Michigan and my dad was in surgery on Friday. And, and later you found out that it was, you yep. know, basically the worst kind of brain tumor you can get. Like I believe it was the same one John McCain had. John McCain had just it. Just acts so quickly. Yeah, John McCain had it. Bo Biden, same same cancer, called glioblastoma multiforma. Uh, Peter Wyckoff, who was the base hormonist in Hong Kong, he just passed away from it about a year ago as well. And he he was only like forty five years old, maybe maybe yeah. less. It, I mean. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's a terrible disease. Luckily it's not a painful disease, generally speaking, because your brain itself doesn't have any, um, pain sensors. So, you know, we got to experience the last, my dad lived for four months, uh, four and a half months with, with the diagnosis and he had to have brain surgery and chemo and radiation, all that stuff. But the chemo and radiation are actually pretty gentle, relatively speaking. There's none of the throwing up, none of the losing of your hair. So generally speaking, that part of the diagnosis was decent but the prognosis and the life expectancy is horrible. And so we knew this was the end of time. So I, I canceled everything and I just moved back to Michigan and took care of my family and made food and drove all over creation, you know, drove down to Ann Arbor mm-hmm. multiple times to go to university of Michigan hospital. And you know, it just changed my role in my life, which was uh, yeah. important, important to me. Sometimes life forces you to grow up extremely quickly, but, you know, you, you see all these, these instincts sometimes that you don't even, you don't even know you had that, that just kick in, you know, it's your family, you yeah. know, you're taking care of them and there's no better person to do that than, than you. So, you know, you, you, you got to spend these last few months with him and, you know, I only got to, I've gotten to know him from, from the side, but through the retreat and, you know, we, we have the retreat in, in the hometown where they, uh, Nick's parents live and, and he was just a model dad, you know, he, he, he's quiet. Um, but was always just like knew how to diffuse situations if he needed to. He was like, he was like the guy that just kept everything moving. Yeah. You know? he, he was a funny guy too. Hilarious. Yeah. And that's where you got a lot of your sense of humor and just like this dream dad, you know, and, and for me, like, you know, having sometimes complicated relationship with my dad it you know it was just it was really refreshing to see and i mean i can't he was so proud of you like all the time and so much of you know when you have a good friend and you get to meet their parents you get that opportunity to like like oh (laughs) for better or worse yeah you're like oh that that's where he gets that from yeah you know, all these wonderful traits you see from him. And we had, you know, this special experience with, he got to be there for one last retreat and his favorite piece is, is Danny boy, which we sometimes joked about. He, he'll listen to it in any context or whatever. And Unbelievable. This... Uh, we don't know why he's not Irish. We're not <laughs> Irish. Uh, we have nothing to do with the British Isles. I don't know where he got this love of Danny boy. <laughs> and I, I would just, 
I would find you cool YouTube versions of it sometimes and just send it to him on Facebook. Oh, and he, every, um, he didn't, I don't think he ever found a version he didn't like. <laughs> like every one. <laughs> and some of them are like crazy. He has this one that's Irish and Cuban mix. It's, it's crazy. But yeah, anyhow, I mean, just to wrap up that story, I mean, the, the, the bookends of that story are really unique, I think, for me because, you know, on one end, I found out before playing God or Dameron, which was intense enough. And then, you know, my dad was in hospice uh, towards the end. And so we knew he was passing. And I was actually slated to go home. This was uh, September 25th. I was slated to go home, um, I think, October 1st. And so just a couple of days later. And I was playing with the New York Philharmonic at this point. And we were on a lunch break in between rehearsals. And I got a call from my mom saying, like, he's going to die any second. So you, you need to talk to him right now. He was not speaking, but they held the phone up to him. And I, I said my last words mm. to my dad five minutes before I had to go back to rehearsal with the Philharmonic and playing um, Bluebeard's Castle, Bartok's Bluebeard Castle. And yeah, another moment where I just don't, I don't remember anything. And they were also awesome. They said, if you need to go right now to the airport, like just go and like, we'll cover you. And blah, blah. They, they were great. Just so loving and caring and but at that point you know my i told my mom i said what do i do like do i hop on a plane and she said no it's it's too late he's 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 gone and at that point there's nothing to do you know so i spent the whole rehearsal <laughs> this is the truth i spent the whole rehearsal kind of missing entrances to be honest but no one said a damn thing because i understood i just lost my dad i was on my phone trying to find flights um and booking my trip and trying to cancel because i was so busy at this point I was playing at the Met, I was playing at the Phil, I was playing at the ballet, of course, and, I, and I was, I'm teaching at three schools. I had to cancel everything to go to Michigan for two weeks to, to have the funeral for my dad. And so I spent the whole rehearsal, you know, distracting myself with logistics of dealing with backing out of all this stuff and getting subs and, you know, moving my teaching schedule around, all this stuff. So, you know, the bookends of this were um, very strange. I'll never forget them because they were tied into what I do and what I love, you know? So, you know, and I, I kind of was teasing it, but the still one of the most beautiful moments I think we've ever had at the retreat was, you know, we had a pretty good idea that this would probably be the last time uh, he could come. And man, he was, he was our, he was one of our biggest cheerleaders. He showed up to every event. He helped us however we needed um, cooking hamburgers if we needed or cooking hamburgers. <laughs> moving chairs. And so you wanted to honor him by playing uh, this beautiful arrangement we found. And you played the first part on the bass trombone. And and it, we actually have a video of it that we put up. And, you know, you could you could barely get through it. I had a tough time, yeah. But, um, yeah, that, I actually played that on my senior recital. <laughs> I made a bet with because I knew this is how it turned out and it turned out this way at the retreat for much heavier reasons. But at my recital at Juilliard, I played it as an encore to thank my dad and my parents. And I bet my friends who were playing in the, it's a quintet, uh, that were playing in it, uh, five bucks each that I could make my dad cry. And they said, when, when are you going to, when is he going to cry? Are you going to say something? And I said, no, you'll see. And at the end of Danny boy, he's a puddle out there. <laughs> and they all owe me five bucks. <laughs> Just because I knew it would go down that way. <laughs> and yeah, and your dad came up, you know, with his cane and gave us all hugs at the end. And 
that's that's something that we'll always have and and that's why we're going to play Danny Boy at every retreat. Well, there's there's I mean the thing that was kind of uh, subtle about that moment that was really painful for my mom to see is he came up and shook hands or hugged each individual one of us except for Marco Gomez who who was a student who was playing the the fifth trombone part and the reason was he couldn't see him. Oh. His left peripheral was completely gone and when my dad walked up he couldn't see the left side of the room. So he didn't see Marco was there. And my mom was the one who noticed that. And she said that to me, said she did. She, well, she said to him, Rob, you didn't hug Marco. And, uh, and he's, and he had to look up. Oh my God, there's another person there. Like he had no idea. And so, you know, it was like this beautiful moment, but also like this burst of reality, like, boom, it's like, yeah, this is what's going on. You know, what's the most important thing you learned from your dad? Um, I would say the most important thing I learned is that nourishing relationships and cultivating them, cultivating relationships and maintaining them is the most important thing you can do in your life, both personally and for business. And sometimes those things are completely separate, but a lot of times I think they're completely intertwined. I think that the best way forward in business, uh, whatever you do is to work with people that you trust on a personal level and on a business level. And the only way to get that trust is cu- is cultivating a relationship and, and being honest with that relationship, not, not, not trying to see, okay, what can this person do for me? Well, this person can maybe do things for you, but they're not going to, unless they see you as a person that they respect and, and trust and enjoy being around. So his whole business model, he's very successful in business was based on personal relationships and I think my whole career is based on personal relationships. Yeah, I can, I can play the trombone. Sure. That's fine. But I think a bulk of what I've been able to achieve is because I really do care about the people I work with and I want to know them and be someone that they can trust. I, I think that's one of your superpowers. And, and, and I, I think we have Rob to thank for that in, in huge part. And, you know, you're also, inc- and we're, you know, we're, we're never going to forget Rob ever. No. And we're, you're lucky to, to honor him with your life and everything you do. And, and you are doing that. And it's a privilege to be around it. And in addition to Rob, you have some amazing strong women in your life with your mom, Sally, and your wife, Daniela. Oh yeah. Um, that have obviously helped through this whole situation as well. And could you talk about their impact on, on your, your life getting through it and just your musical life? Well, obviously my, my, my mom, she, uh, was a huge, you know, she's part of a team. She's with my dad. And so she was a huge supporter of everything that I was doing because they were both supporting me. And, um, I would say the number one thing that my mom instilled in me, I don't want to say work ethic because you know, that kind of came from both of them. I, I can't attribute that to my mom alone. That was kind of a team effort, but my mom gave me a love of teaching, I would say. And I didn't realize that number one, I didn't realize that teaching was so important to me until I started doing it regularly. And then I also didn't realize how much teaching would help me learn because I think that it, it, I'm the type of learner that has to be able to know something well enough that I can explain to some, someone. 
And the better I'm able to explain it to someone, the better I know it. And some people, they, they're not such great teachers because they can't explain it. And my mom has always been really good at being able to explain what she does and how to do something, breaking it down into steps. And so I think she instilled that in me is like a curiosity in the actual learning process to be able to teach because she was a fantastic teacher herself. And also uh, she grew up, she grew up on, on a farm in Southern Michigan and real farm girl, you know? And I think she, she instilled, my, my dad was kind of the softer one and she instilled some grit in me, you know, to be able to have some thick skin. It's okay to be sensitive. That's fine. I am sensitive, but to be able to withstand some tough moments and that's really good skill for music because man, oh man, is there a lot of, uh, rejection <laughs> that we face even on a daily basis, but you know, obviously auditions, that's the biggest one. That's, that's black and white, like yes or no. And Daniela, Jesus, I mean, what can I say about her? <laughs> She's um, a force. Yeah, she is an unbelievable force. I mean, she just has an amazing attitude and just her work ethic. I think her her work ethic is second to none. It's crazy. She just, she she can work for 12 hours a day straight and still have like mental power at the end of the day. She just doesn't burn out. She's She's really unbelievable. And I think that's because she grew up in war-torn Yugoslavia, and that's how you get out of that is just by putting your nose to the grindstone and just working. And she's just so talented, and you know her talent her her talent is natural, but it also is very honed. She's worked on it very hard. All right, I have some abbreviated rapid-fire questions for you to close. And I guess the way I've made these, I don't. They might not actually be rapid-fire, but okay, um, we can try. Some are related to ones we've done in the past. I cut out some of the goofy ones. If you could say just a single thing, your single favorite part about playing the trombone. It has to be one word? No. Well, I think I can do it in one word. Sonorous. Ooh. The sound of the trombone. Sound. Creating, which is what drives me the most nuts about some students, like, or some players. It's like, oh man, yeah, you can get all over the horn but you're not doing it with the best sound. I'd rather hear something real slow and lyrical. Um, like Randy Hawes said at the retreat one time, he said, I'm kind of an adagio guy, you know, cause that's what Randy <laughs> Hawes is known for. It's just the sound. Yeah. And that's, that was one of my teachers. Uh, I studied with him in high school a little bit and sound, just creating a beautiful sound, on the instrument uh, that in both hearing it and playing it, the beautiful sound is, is what grabs me. It's free therapy. Yep. You know, if it's not making you feel good, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? You're, he's looking at you. He's standing right in front of you. Sweet sideburns, brah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd tell my 18-year-old self, slow down. Slow down your practice. Like the amount or just like the way you practice? The way I practice. I, I wanted to get to the end goal faster. And the way I do it is by playing, a, let's say it's a fast passage. I play it fast over and over and over and over and over again, where it's like, okay, I could do it for 15 minutes slow, and then I'll have it and be able to play it fast much quicker than if I just beat it into the ground playing it fast over and over and over again. It's one of the hardest lessons to learn. Yep. And listen to the wording on this one. What's the most important musical experience that you've had? Huh. God, it's hard to limit one. The first one that comes to my mind is playing my first run of Swan Lake with the ballet 
the music is incredible. There's no doubt. But there was just this moment of like all this hard work going towards this one goal. It just kind of finally sunk in like, wow, like I'm, I'm here. Like I've, I've, I've arrived at something that looks like my goal. You literally just described the, the climactic final scene of Billy Elliot. <laughs> well, if, if people haven't heard, it gives me goosebumps every time. Still, if people out there haven't heard the last five minutes of Swan Lake, I think it's one of the greatest endings in all of classical music. It's so beautiful and it's so lush and powerful. And it's, it's like every emotion wrapped up into like a three to five minute chunk of music. It's so good. And so that definitely helped <laughs> that, that moment of just like transcendence of like, Oh my God, I can't believe I've made it here. You know? And that, that brings up another question. You, you've mentioned prodigal son and Swan Lake. If you, if you say one ballet work, that the average trombonist probably has never heard before, but should know or should hear. I would I would say the Swan Lake in its entirety, but while looking at the score and, and understanding that how much you have to play the, the bass trombone part, something it's close to sixty pages. It's huge. It's tons of playing, and you you have to pace yourself. It's one of those. It's you have it's one of those ones you can't just like go full bore. I mean, you shouldn't ever go full bore all the time. But if you did, you'd be done by intermission. <laughs> Your face would be chopped. I almost had to come and sight read that one. You made it in the building. And then our principal Tremonist showed up at the 11th hour, you know. <laughs> They're like, you have a tux? Exactly. Throw your tux on. I hopped in the cab. Didn't warm up. Here's a 60-page book. We're going <laughs> on luck. in 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm just like leafing through it. Yep. Okay, last question. If you had to choose one aspect, and we've talked about a lot of things today, but if you could choose one aspect of your career that you're most grateful for. God, all of it. I mean, especially now in 2020 when we've been just immediately ripped, everything ripped out of our hands. It makes you grateful for all the things that you do. You know, like I said at the beginning, on a day like today, I would be playing two nutcrackers and, and teaching for two hours in between. So I guess to boil that down into a single statement, I'm I'm grateful for not only the variety that my career has developed into by, you know, I play at the Met a lot. Of course, my job's in the ballet, and that's my primary place. But I play at the Philharmonic, and I play the other orchestras. And I, the variety, the variety, the opportunities that people are willing to give a, a schmuck from Michigan, you know, uh, a chance to do. <laughs> and, and, you know, not I don't take that, those chances for granted because I, I don't, you know, total imposter syndrome. I don't feel worthy of these great chances, um, no matter how much I do them. So I feel very grateful for the variety that my career has developed into. Well, I'm grateful for you. You too. I, I, I'm proud of you. Well, thanks. I'm proud of you too. And um, I'm I'm glad you're healthy because you've had that scare. Oh, I was just, just trying to make 2020 spicy. <laughs> Tis but a flesh wound. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, I just, just yesterday I had two separate students ask us, well, is the retreat going to be in person next summer? And, um, I just want to touch on that and say, well, we hope so, but you know, it's kind of these decisions, like most decisions in our life at this moment are completely out of our hands. So we're waiting to see what the numbers look like and fingers crossed for this vaccine so that we can get back to making music and playing fire horse in person again. <laughs> we'll just do it every single year now so we don't have to rehearse things. Um Yeah, man, and I still can't, you know, it's just it's our project. Yeah. But it's 
it's our project, you know, and we encourage everyone create something that's your own because it's, it's taken the most work of probably anything we've ever done, Absolutely. but we're so proud of it. And I couldn't be happier to do it, be doing it with one of my best friends. Me too. And I think that that's the main reason it, it works. So really, really nice talking to you like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and we're, we're going to turn it around in the new year and do oh and, and have you in the hot seat. You're probably going to notice me just keep trying to subtly delay it because how nervous that makes me feel. But yeah, maybe in 2022 we'll, well, we'll find the time. Well, you have <laughs> you have the unfortunate, well, I'm grateful for it, but the unfortunate job of you do the editing for our podcasts. And so I'm sitting here, you're edit, you're interviewing me. I don't have to go back and listen to my own voice for hours on I'm editing it. You're going to have to be interviewed and listen to yourself. So I understand why you're much more nervous than I was for this. <laughs> it helps having a nice microphone. At least it's not like, you know, like when you hear your voice on, on the answering machine for the first time or your voicemail, it's 2020. Um, <laughs> and you're just like, that's not me. I wonder who's, who's that Kermit the Frog person. <laughs> Kermit talking. the Frog. That was <laughs> the first time I heard you say that about yourself. Kermit the Frog was when we went, we went on the local radio station here to advertise the Tramon retreat. And we came home to hear the broadcast of it. And you said, Kermit, the frog here. And I had never heard your voice that way. And, you know, with a good mic, I got to tell you, I don't hear it anymore. It's nice. Well, it's, it's, just, it's the same concept of when you practice in recording yourself, you notice things about your voice that are better. Like even little things like thinking about relaxing my jaw yeah. really helps your voice produce more naturally. And, and feeling the vibration in your chest and like all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, you know, you, you get better at stuff and the annoying parts, like if your voice is nasal, there's probably a reason for that, you know? <laughs> well, also, you know, people don't see this, but you know, before every podcast, uh, Sebastian does an entire Maoran, uh, war dance, like the New Zealand natives. I do. One of my favorite pastimes is anyone that's been in music school knows the ridiculousness of vocalist warmups. They're just, there, there's so many ridiculous. So my favorite pastime is just making things up that sound like that and doing it before podcasts. <laughs> the moonshiner had no teeth. Ping pong, ping pong, ping pong, ping pong, ping. All right, man. Well, I love you. And I love you too, man. And this was cool. And yeah, I'm looking forward to to hanging out soon hopefully you'll just make make your i know way through here next time we are going to that's the plan you know that all right bro all right thanks dude <laughs> <laughs>thanks for hanging out today If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, as it helps us out a lot. If you'd like to leave a question or topic you'd like us to discuss, we'll talk about it on the podcast as well. Also follow us at Trombone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and our website, tromboneretreat.com. Also feel free to shoot us an email at tromboneretreat at gmail.com, as we love hearing from you. On Instagram, follow Nick at BassTrombone444 and myself at js.vera. And finally, never forget to retreat yourself. Rippy tap, rippy tom, rip tap.
tap tim tom rippy tap tippy tom rippy tap tippy tom rip tap tom rip tip tom rip tip tom